Hey everyone, you're listening to Spark, where we amplify the voices of the Middle East startup, tech, and innovation ecosystem. I'm your host, Shireen, and along with our guests, we share with you expert insights on the latest and most relevant news. Our goal is to help you easily digest trending topics and be better equipped to know what to make of it all. everyone who's anyone is on Clubhouse these days. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, it's an audio-based networking app that allows you to connect with people and engage with them in discussions. The only problem is it's invite only and available on iOS only, so it's a little exclusive for now. But this app has been growing like crazy. People have actually rescheduled real-life engagements with me in order to get online and network through Clubhouse. Now, I'm not active on it yet. I'd love to hear from you guys if you're on it, how you're engaging with other podcasters on it, what you'd like me to do on it, really. Uh, Drop me a note and I'll be happy to get online. Meanwhile, I'd like to update you on what else has been happening on my end. And I'm happy to let you know that you can now hear me play host on another podcast, which is called Akhbaraka, and that's owned by a newly found startup called Beraka. Akhbaraka's Beraka's Audio's newscast. Yes, a mouthful, I know. Akhbaraka, for those of you who don't know, means your news in Arabic. And as Beraka's news editor, I'll be giving you the latest Middle East and international stock market news every Monday to Friday in less than five minutes. That's less time than it takes to actually charge your AirPods to listen to the show. Akhbarak is available on all the same streaming apps you'd be listening to Spark on. So that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you name it. Hope you tune in. And if you do manage to, feel free to also drop me a line on that and let me know what you think. Now, today's episode is all about growing through a global mindset. And I'm talking about growing your business. With me on the show is Basil Muftah, who's a partner at Global Ventures. Global Ventures is a VC in the Middle East that focuses on investing in disruptive enterprise technology. Together, we discuss a few things, namely how entrepreneurs can benefit by having an offense and a defense position when expanding globally, the capital efficiencies of B2B businesses versus B2C, how KSA is the largest single market opportunity in MENA, and why product market fit is a sham and instead startups need to adopt consistent and great product management. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight to today's episode. So the topic of today is companies in MENA expanding globally. Why would a company want to expand globally if they can be a big enough company in MENA. And we've seen companies become big enough, and I define big enough by unicorn status here in the region, i.e. Kenim. So I think expanding globally isn't for everybody. Let's just start there, right? It doesn't, the topic itself isn't necessarily something that I would recommend to every startup or everybody that I meet. But technology is so borderless and technology is so frictionless or becoming frictionless that If you think the competition is just around you, then you're sorely mistaken. Competition can come at you from so many different areas. And with technology, especially if you're building something and yes, you're doing well in in your part or your neck of the woods, if you like, it doesn't mean that an outside competitor who's well-funded couldn't come after you. So one of the reasons I think, and, and something that to be thoughtful about, to expand globally is sort of the best defense is sometimes offense and is to go after your competitors' markets and make sure that you're kind of making them hustle in their market rather than them making you hustle in yours. 
So why do you think, though, someone would need to, let's say, deal with their competition in their market as opposed to just growing in their own market and being so superior locally that anyone who tries to, let's say, penetrate the fortress can't get through? It's just one of the reasons to go global. There are many other reasons to go global. Going global increases your TAM. That has a direct effect on, you know, your valuation, your potential to investors. To prove that your technology is not just confined to one geography, but that the same need is somewhere else. So it comes down to ambition and it comes down to, you know, the vision. I tweeted recently, and I had something I really believe in, about, you know, if If you want to be a $100 million company, then you got to go after a billion dollar opportunity. And if you want to be a billion dollar company, you're going to have to go after a $10 billion opportunity. That the rule is that the kind of the bigger the ambition, the the higher the likelihood of you being successful in achieving your goals, your real goals, Mm. if, if you like. Because there are other market forces, competitors, market dynamics. You are in, in one country susceptible to that country's risks, whether it's currency or political or market risks, you know, GDP's up, GDP's down. So again, expanding into multiple markets is is a form of a hedge, if you like, or a form of an insurance policy at some level too. That being said, you make a great point. Should we or should a company expand before it's too soon? When is soon enough? Those are really difficult questions and and are really come down to each individual company's situation and and so on. I would agree with you that I don't recommend a company that's just getting started in one market to all of a sudden try to tackle three or four. But if they have that in their plans, the way you build technology, the way you hire people, the way you, you know, you business plan your your dreams, if you like, and, and the journey of the company are different, right? You would keep an eye on making sure that you have multiple language support, for example, if that's applicable in your expansion. You would keep an eye on certain regulatory changes in one market or another that you may want to take advantage of, or a sandbox that's opened up in another market if you're a fintech that you may want to, you know, participate in just so that it kind of eases your your ability to get into that other market. You think differently. And ultimately, the statement about go global is really a statement about the entrepreneurial mindset, right? Is it a local mindset? Is it a global mindset? And those I see very big differences between. So you're an investor, and I'm sure you must get piles of pitch decks thrown at you. When you open it up and you go to the slides that showcase that company's trajectory and growth plans, if it doesn't include a growth plan beyond MENA, does it work against them in the case of pitching to investors? Or do you think that going back to the point you said that early companies don't need to expand based on the stage of business, you would judge otherwise? So for clarity, actually, there are lots of things in what you just said. So let's start off. Last year, Global Ventures saw about 2,400 companies. When you say saw, sorry, just to clarify, actual meetings were held or pitch books received? Those were pitch books received and I would say screened. So somebody spent effort and time to look at that. Sometimes it's a five minute job because it's like an email that's, you know, clearly someone who's just 
fetching information or just throwing out a hook, if you like. But many of them come with solid decks and, and, and lots of people's time and effort. And we're very conscious that when someone submits something to us, that they should, you know, that we have to respect the work that they've, ta- they've put into it and the effort they've put into it. So we take the time to screen and we have screening criteria and we go through a methodology and we score and we provide an email back to the entrepreneur that kind of says, thank you very much. This is too early stage for us or this is, you know, doesn't fit our mandate or these are the things that we kind of did not think are suitable for us to look at at this point, but please keep us updated. And there will be tracking. We use a CRM tool. I mean, we're a business, Mm -hmm. right? Just like any other business. And we have to provide customer support just like any other business does, right? Now, if somebody is not looking at expanding globally, does that disqualify them? Absolutely not, right? Let's just start from that. I don't want anybody to walk away and say, I'm not going to apply to global ventures because I'm just in one country. But I, like I said earlier, I think the entrepreneurial mindset is very different for those who think on a regional basis or on a global basis. And let me emphasize, not every ambition has to be being global, but I do believe there's a difference between I'm a UAE only business versus I'm a GCC business Mm. or I'm a Middle East business. And then for those, again, and the same kind of thinking applies to Am I a MENA business or am I a, you know, Middle East and Africa or or am I actually going to even expand into Europe and into the US, if you like, right? And, Mm -hmm. And other markets and so on. So the mindset is what's important here, right? And the mindset says a lot about ambition. It says a lot about how you plan your work. You you know, I, I could throw it back straight at you and say, for this podcast, is your audience, you know, the UAE audience or the Gulf audience or all of Middle East, or is it even a global? And how does it change the way you think about your questions or the way you, you know, organize the interviews or maybe even the people that you bring onto the show? If you believe you're only talking to a UAE audience, fair enough, great audience. I'm not sure how many podcasts you can do about that, but, but it has a certain limit mm-hmm. at some point it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of kind of you know growth how far can you take it when you think of it as a global all of a sudden your thinking is different mm-hmm. right you know recently and i know i'm going on way too long on this question <laughs> but, i'm trying to keep a tally of the questions i'm going back your way <laughs> yeah. but you know recently let me stop on this one that's fine okay so Whenever a company comes to me and says I'm UAE based, my recommendation is always, but your growth is limited. You need to at least look at your neighbor KSA. Now, the issue here lies that some companies are based in the UAE, not because of the market opportunity, but because it's a great place to work and therefore they want to set up their HQ here, set their staff here and operate like a hub and spoke model. So just zooming in on the GCC for a second, what markets do you think are sufficient for a company to operate within and be a quote unquote big enough company versus, oh, if you're there, you got to expand? To answer a question like that in the general in a general format is difficult, right? Mm-hmm. And the difficulty is, again, it's very specific. This discussion is very specific to, you know, the company, the business, the entrepreneur, and so on. Because maybe it is just that entrepreneur's ambition and that en- entrepreneur's mindset is suitable to to run a single country strategy, if you like. Mm-hmm. But to come back to your question, of course, Saudi, 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 right? I mean, that's so repeated in every business plan we see because it is by far the largest in the GCC. 
And I think people tag on Bahrain, people tag on, you know, Kuwait maybe as kind of extensions of that Saudi. But I can't see, I've never seen a business plan that has Bahrain without Saudi or or Kuwait without Saudi. If the, if well, Bahrain right. without anything. I think the market's yeah. just way too small. Exactly. So so I guess we all know the answer. And I think it doesn't take a, a kind of a genius to figure out that Saudi is a very important market. But again, I repeat and, and, and I believe it goes back to that mindset set and ambition. I'm not saying someone couldn't have a great business just in Saudi. I'm just saying as an investor who's looking for 10 times my return, who's mm. who has certain goals on on how the investment process will go, I'm very doubtful that there are businesses that if you said was just purely Saudi would meet that criteria. And I'm happy to be challenged on that point because one of the big big questions you have to ask is What's the exit going to look like, hmm. right? And if the exit is going to be to sell to one of, of a handful of strategic investors just in Saudi family businesses or whatever it is, then you're limiting yourself severely to where that exit will be, right? Hmm. As opposed to, hey, I'm in the UAE and I am in Saudi and I'm having plans to go into Kuwait. Now, all of a sudden, global players are interested in that business and regional players are interested in that business and those are the guys that are more deeply pocketed to make the, you know get you that outsized returns and if we get down to I don't know the logistics business and last mile delivery one of the toughest industries to be in because of the cutthroat competition sure you got to dominate the country you're in first before you think about going somewhere else and you may never have the chance to go somewhere else for that matter because the competition is so cutthroat but if the plan is to you know build a logistics platform then which one do you think has the higher potential of achieving those returns is it one that has the uae market or is it one that's doing three or four of those markets with cross-border with cross i don't know what the word is here pollination of of customer opportunities that you can help a customer go into one or several markets at the same time interesting what i'm gathering is the biggest takeaway which is something that didn't even occur to me is the mindset of the entrepreneur being something let's say an investor would want to invest in more than the actual growth strategy itself. That's what I'm saying for global ventures. I mean, it's, in, you know, the kind of, we give it away in name, right? Global ventures. So I never even put two and two together. <laughs> so it's that important to us, right? Again, mm. it doesn't mean you have to go global. That's not the point. It's the mindset, right? Of can you think globally or regionally? Can you compete on a global level? Do you understand that your competitor may be not anywhere in the region, but someone sitting building software in Ukraine, mm. who all of a sudden with a bit of marketing is your competitor on the ground. I mean, who is the competitor to podcasts? Is it the six people who are here doing podcasts in the UAE today? Sure. Or is it also you're competing with attention on, on people's time because I can flip on my phone from, you know, a podcast in, in Dubai to one in California to one in New York? You know, radio is, is a good barometer to this, right? So radio's been through a lot, right? It's, had, <laughs> it's you know. What's radio? Sorry, it's exactly. been a while. <laughs> For those of you out there who don't know what radio is, let me explain. <laughs> it's a device that you used to turn on and it 
picked up airwaves out of the air. <laughs> I think it comes with every car, though, right? <laughs> it does, but no, I don't think my kids know how to use the radio. My point to you is, again, think about you know radio. Radio is a very local business. Here comes the internet. It wipes out the in, you know the idea of local radio, right? Towards people now can choose what they want to listen to from where they want to listen. I remember with the internet listening to you know my favorite California station all the way in Egypt, right, where mm. I grew up, and and you're kind of like. Hmm, that's interesting. Now I don't need to listen to the, you know, the channel that I hate every day that you know that I was kind of forced to or limited to. The technology took away all the borders, and that's mm. radio. So if we talk about software and we talk about technology and in AI and ML and throw in your favorite buzzword of the month into it, the competition is literally everywhere. So speaking of SaaS companies and the like, do you think it's easier to scale software B2B businesses as opposed to B2C businesses simply because consumer preferences may vary more drastically when going global? We believe that B2B is more capital efficient by and large, right? So we've allocated, you know, a maximum of 25% of our funds into B2C and even that we're hesitant to do. And we've been very focused. We were the first fund in the region to be enterprise focused. So fund one was all about enterprise software, enterprise businesses, if you like. Fund two, similarly, and I can talk a little bit more Mm. in detail about some of the strategies. But I'm, you know, your statement or your question already has the answer in it, right? In B2C businesses, who's getting rich here. And and I always think about you're making Google rich, you're making Facebook rich with all of its, you know, assets, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera, because they're capturing the lion's share of the use of proceeds into digital marketing, right? So those guys, and not only that, they're kind of, you know, setting the prices, right? Who sets the price of Google ads? They, you know, the claim is obviously that it's a marketplace and prices are set dynamically. But when they have 70 or 80% of the ad spend here in the region, what do you think happens? You know, this part of the world, for various reasons, Google advertising is dominant, right? Mm. It's, it's, and they get, and it's the most expensive market to advertise on because we don't have many other assets to advertise on. Between Google and Facebook, what else you got? Right? I'm talking about, you know, including Instagram and whatever else you want to throw underneath their YouTube, et cetera, that they own. But they're setting the market. So they're setting it at a premium and they're able to extract a lot of money out of this. So if I put $5 million into a company and I see that, you know, three and a half million is going to marketing. The only thing I can think about are my friends working at Google and and Facebook making their bonuses, you know, based on investment dollars. And that's not a good use of an investor's money. Mm. But yeah, I think it's more capital efficient to the point you were making. You can sell, build software in India or Pakistan and have it led by management in Dubai product you know, designers and chief product officers based here. And you can sell it in Egypt, UK and Brazil for that matter, right? Mm. It's pretty easy to do that on the internet. Not saying that it's that simple. You have to understand local markets, the sales cycle. In some cases, you will have to invest in people on the ground to, you know, facilitate the sales cycle. But you know, the ratio of the money spent for customer acquisition to the lifetime value is a very different equation. So capital efficiency aside, 
As an entrepreneur trying to decide whether to go into an international market, do you think I would more likely run into product market fit issues if my business model was B2C? So product market fit is one of the most overused terms that I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Let's talk more. Tell me why. <laughs> I'm quite fond of the term. Terms like these have legs because they are shortcut to many more detailed concepts, right? So it's a, in, instead of a, trying to explain product market fit is where, you know, the customer usage is above a certain percentage versus the value that they paid for the product and the feature functionality is adapted to the local new. I mean, we can get into the details of what product market, and if you ever want to look up a definition, yes, markets are local, right? And, and there are certain adaptations that need to be done. And even in a certain market, once you do achieve, quote unquote, product market fit, even that changes with time. Customers are fleeting. True, yeah. Their needs change. The way they work changes. Who would have known that, you know, the video functionality or the video features of all of the softwares that we use is going to become the most important piece given, you know, the pandemic, remote working, social distancing, and so on. And all of a sudden, products that had really well-built-in video features skyrocketed, right? And others, which they kind of video was a, you know, pet project, or maybe they didn't even include it into the product, you know, flopped. And, mm. and there's a whole bunch of stories about, you know, everybody talks about Zoom. You want to look at the list of the next hundred companies behind them that that build video conferencing tools, but they were thinking about transcription and thinking about you know chat and oh let me create a virtual room and and have people like look at each other like it's a virtual room and playing with all sorts of fancy technologies. What people wanted was video. Okay, right? on that note, <laughs> Clubhouse. Yeah, not everyone wants video. <laughs> I, fair enough, fair enough. But just to answer your question, mm -hmm. yes, product market fit is important and it's one that is is a skill and in this part of the world we have a severe drought on chief product officers and people what do you mean by drought lack of uh, so a skill gap a skill gap of not enough people who understand product management product design and the discipline required to do it consistently well what you know we do see great products i do see great apps but i love to see products adapting to the mm. customer's needs continuously. One of my favorite apps, by the way, is Cafu. I'm I've sure, never used it, by the way. I'm sure some people <laughs> on the on the on the podcast are familiar with it. Maybe others are not. It's an app that allows you to order effectively a fuel truck to come fill up your car wherever you may be, at home, at work, as long as it's somewhere where it can be accessed by another fuel truck vehicle, like a small fuel truck vehicle, not a big one, obviously. And it can come and fill up your car. It can be in the middle of the night. It, two a, I do my fill-ups at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. Right? Oh, you're and up it, at 2, 2 a.m.? No, I'm not. I just schedule it. One of its oh, tools is it doesn't need supervision. It doesn't need supervision. It needs, you just pre-schedule it and you can, you know, put it up. But here's a great product. Let me tell you the story. They started off as a subscription, right? They said, we're going to charge everybody 29 dirhams a month for the service. Within a few months, they dropped that. How many companies do you know that start off with a feature? And, and they were, you know, they were getting demand for the 29 dirhams. Don't get me wrong. They were doing well. People were willing to subscribe because who wants to stay in long lines at gas stations and, and all of that stuff? So so people were willing to pay it and it seemed like a reasonable price, especially that if you were tipping the person who filled up your car or giving a little bit of an extra payment here or there, you're like, okay, you know, this replaces that. If anything, mm -hmm. it might be cheaper. 
they dropped it within a few months, right? Because they realized customers, and I and I know, you know, I've, I've had a chance to meet the founder and some of the team and, and to understand everything. They realized it was just a barrier to usage, right? It was one more step in the adoption of the product. And if you wanted adoption and utilization of the fuel trucks that they spent money on buying to be very high, take it out, right? And so they gave up revenue, if you like, in return for making up increasing utilization of the vehicles, which then they make up the profits from there. Mm. So one is a trade-off. That's product management, right? That's really strategic in the thinking process. So I guess what I'm trying to say ultimately is, yes, you need product market fit. Markets will need adaptation. There are some products that make it across markets well, but that's part of the mindset. Do you understand what it takes to be successful in more than one market? Let's wrap it up there on that. On Clubhouse. Clubhouse. (laughs) Have you used Clubhouse? I'm on Clubhouse since I think late December. So I don't know if that makes me an early adopter. That's early. I was looking at their growth curve. So I guess I came in after they passed kind of the two, just around the two million, two million mark uh, user. And I think they're just this month, January, I think they passed six. I guess February, we're about to see like a 12 or something like that. It's going to be ridiculous. So I guess that makes me early, but I'm not, I wasn't early. You know, I'm fortunate enough to have worked in the VC world in California from 97 to 2002. I still have lots of friends, lots of connections. You know, I personally have worked in a number of markets as well, UK, Europe, Boston, Washington, D.C. I've been in a a bunch of places. So I guess someone told me about it. I don't remember who right now. I'm sure if we check it, I think it tells you who nominated you or something like that. So maybe that that will be the giveaway on Clubhouse, although that could be just the person who admitted you in. But nonetheless, I heard about it, I think, through a friend who's out in California or something like that. And I downloaded it and, you know, kind of tried it out the first few times. It was intriguing, interesting. I think it's definitely most intriguing because you get to listen to, I don't know, Mark Andreessen or Elon Musk or some of these well-known celebrities in the world of innovation and venture capital. And you kind of feel like you're, you know, listening to them very intimately is probably mm. the way to do it. They're talking off, you know, nothing's pre-recorded, nothing is kind of, you know, set up. It's them coming into the room, chatting about whatever the topic that, and questions and people get to ask questions. So I like the format. I'm probably in the camp of thinking this won't last, at least without some product development and some enhancements and so on. But I think I've remembered what I wanted to say earlier about Clubhouse. What's really interesting about Clubhouse is when you have the rooms with people from various parts of the world, right, together. So sure, some of the rooms are about, I don't know, the state of San Francisco and the latest laws and some of the local issues going on and, you know, with COVID and and things like that. And it kind of attracts similarly minded people. Mm. And those are interesting discussions, but I'm not personally interested in those. But when people start to talk about, you know, strategies for advertising and, and, and marketing or how is the VC world going to evolve, all of a sudden you have people from Japan and UK and US and from various parts of the US, East Coast, West Coast, Latin America, some people from the Middle East talking on the same thing. And those discussions are really interesting, right? Because Mm. these are people who, I can't think of any other venue where they would randomly meet and talk about these things together, right? Some of it's orchestrated by the club managers, sure, but a lot of it is very organic and very 
ad hoc, right? And it's kind of, you know, people brought together, someone in a room raises a hand, gets to speak, and then gets added into the panel. And all of a sudden, there's this tangent about rolling funds in Asia. And you're listening to why rolling funds, are they going to be successful or not in Asia versus how they've been so successful in the U.S. of late? And I find that is a, a good stretch of the mind. Interesting. Do you partake or do you just sit back and listen and consume? I've only partaken in one, meaning I was invited as a panelist in one discussion, which was a bit of a regional kind of Middle East versus California type of discussion. And it was specifically about emerging managers, VC managers, micromanagers, they called, I think, or something like that. And this new concept called rolling funds, which was a more generalized format of what AngelList does. Mm-hmm. Again, for those of you not familiar, there's a whole new world that says everybody should be able to do VC. And every investor, small or big, it shouldn't be a game that's only limited to big investors or high net worth individuals. The idea is that if you like a certain manager, a bit like an influencer, and you think, hey, Shireen is a great investor, she really knows how to pick startups, that she can set up on AngelList or there are other platforms now, a way for me to kind of put $10,000 in with Shireen. And then Shireen would use that money in her future investments and, you know, presumably her track record continues to be successful and we'd all make money. Democratization is kind of the term that gets floated around this. And to make that happen, the fund is not a 10-year type of fund similar to what you're used to in traditional VC. The fund actually has quarterly closes. So every quarter, whatever's in the pot becomes that fund one. Quarter two, fund two. Quarter three. So within a year, you have four funds already set up. Small, because, you know, it's it's pooling of capital, but that's how it gets done. Is this a regulated activity? Is it considered crowdfunding? There is a few gray areas here. It's regulated to the extent that anytime you take money from anybody, there are regulations in the U.S. and everywhere in the world that regulate that. The gray area is, what is it, right? Is it crowd? Is it fund management? Is it, you know, and kind of you go back to the principles of, you know, how do you make the buyer beware or the investor beware and and what are your fiduciary and non-fiduciary duties to those investors? And and that's where the debate was, ultimately. I don't want to rehash that discussion. (laughs) I can tell you it got heated. There was a little bit of, you know, of things flying in the room there. The virtual room. (laughs) The virtual room. Nothing physical. But nonetheless, it it was good. And it opened my mind. I learned some things out of it. I think people also got to hear the other perspective coming from, you know, a traditional VC like myself who's operating in this new market, you know, and I'll sum it up by saying, I think it's an evolution that makes sense in a place like the U.S. where technology investments have just become so pervasive everywhere. I think we have some ways to go here in the region before we can kind of open the doors to every everybody being able to participate in VC funds because education is needed. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my point of view. But I can tell you there are a few people who didn't agree with that on the call. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had an interesting conversation. I think I've learned a lot. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I love what you do keep it up and i think it's really something that i hope you know flourishes and becomes global inshallah (laughs) thanks thanks for tuning in today don't forget to subscribe to future episodes on your podcast listening platform of choice and whilst you're there leave a review and rate our show so that other aspiring innovators can find it 
To find a summary of our discussion today and links to our guests, access our show notes by visiting our website, sparkwithshireen.com. If you don't want to miss out on future announcements, subscribe to our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at sparkwithshireen. Before you go, I'd like to let you know that we love hearing from our listeners. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, including guest or topic recommendations, drop us a message through our website or social platforms. If you didn't have a pen or paper handy to write all this down, don't worry. We've gone ahead and added all these links in the episode description. All you have to do is scroll down and click when you have a moment. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.